You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You're listening to the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Today we're going to talk about two of the more fascinating teams in baseball, the Royals on pace to win 97 games, the Pirates on pace to win 94 games, two teams that were in the basement for literally decades, two teams that are almost certainly going to find their way in the playoffs this year. We're going to start with the Pirates, and we're going to start with Travis Sochik, award-winning reporter for the Pittsburgh Tribune Review and recent author of Big Data Baseball, Math Miracles, and the End of a 20-Year Losing Streak. Travis, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks so much for having me on. I want to start with your book, and this is my main takeaway from your book, and tell me if you think this is an accurate statement. The reason that the Pirates have been so successful in using analytics is not because they have smart guys like Dan Fox from Baseball Prospectus, Mike Fitzgerald from MIT, because a lot of teams have that. They've been successful because they are as good as anyone is getting that information onto the field by, you know, really partnership between the front office, this quote-unquote stat nerds, and uniform personnel. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I'm glad that's your takeaway because that was definitely one of the key points I was trying to get across <laughs> the book is that, like you said, everyone has uh, you know, a small army of quantitative analysts at this point, but not all teams get the same uh, data-based ideas on the field. So why did the Pirates uh, get such buy-in? So, yeah, that's definitely a key takeaway. One thing that uh, I found fascinating is when this first they first started kind of going with this, they really had difficulty getting buy-in at the major league level. So they decided to start from the bottom in the minors. Uh, there was a great story about one Pirates executive using spray paint and another one using PVC pipes to show on minor league fields where fielders should stand with the shift. Uh, and there are some players on the team now who came up with that, like Jordy Mercer. How much do you think that helped to get the buy-in at the major league level, having it be something of an organizational mandate? Yeah, I think it's... And, and, a key point was that it started at the minor league level before the major league coaching staff was a, was willing to accept it. They had some players like Jordy Mercer uh, who were exposed to it before the major league coaches were. So when those guys arrived, uh, their acceptance level was uh, that's just, just what they were used to. That's the culture they grew up in. So yeah, I you know it started with Dan Fox and Kyle Stark and seeing the the minor league clubs lead their leagues in defensive efficiency uh, helped Clint Hurdle and his staff eventually decide to go all in on this. And part of the necessity, because I'm not sure they survived another season of that consecutive losing streak goes to 21 seasons. Well, I'm glad you brought that up about Hurdle, because uh, Huntington obviously was there before he was, Fox was there before he was, and they hire Hurdle, who's, you know, a quote-unquote old-school baseball guy. He's been around forever. Not exactly the kind of guy you'd think would buy into this stuff, but it sounds like exactly the opposite has happened. Do you think that's just about self-preservation, or has he seen more value to it? I think part of it was self-preservation, but Hurdle is a smart guy. Uh, the only B he had at high school is a driver's ad, so uh, he has intelligence. And yeah, after he left the Rockies, after he was fired by the Rockies, he uh, spent some time at MLB Network where he was exposed to, uh, in 2009, some of the, the, the Fangraphs uh, young analysts working at the network who helped get information on the broadcast. And that really, I think, broadened his, his scope, his, his horizon as far as uh, analytics and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, Hurdle deserves a lot of credit for being an open-minded guy, and he is, you know, he, he eventually he understood that, hey, I can't ignore this. This is, these guys are trying to help. This information can help in some way, and there's, there's a lot of credit for creating that culture of collaboration and integration. 
Do you think being uh, open-minded is maybe an attribute that that Pittsburgh will look at in importing players, you know, guys who will buy into this, guys who won't have pushback? Maybe that, that helps them select players they might not have otherwise uh, imported? I don't know. That's a good question. I'm not sure how much it, that has gone on to date, but I know a player like Mark Melanson really benefited from it, and he has uh, given perspective back to uh, – he's asked questions of the analysts that they wouldn't have thought of, uh, you know, uh, on a cutter-based picture, a lot of the guys are, are two-seam-based. Two Maybe scattering ports should be a little more personalized for my pitch type. And, and he, so he had a role in uh, more individualizing scouting reports. So, uh, and he's benefited. Charlie Morton analyzes his outings based in part on pitch effects data, movement, uh, mouse price stat cast data, movement. So yeah, I think it can help a player who is interested and who is uh, data-savvy, but I'm not sure it's like a driving uh, or a salient reason they, they target certain players. Uh, I think the uh, the next step forward in this is probably keep playing, keeping players healthy. Uh, you know, billions of dollars a year end up on the disabled list, and that's something the Pirates have been really good at. Uh, this didn't come from your book, but I, I think you wrote about it recently, is that with the pitchers, they're trying this, this I guess, an agent, really, quote-unquote, technology called cupping and some really techniques that other teams aren't really using uh, you're on the ground, obviously, far more than I am. Do you, do you see buy into that, and that's that's been useful for the team? Cupping, what's interesting about cupping is uh, it leaves these bruises, so it looks like guys have been beaten by some spherical <laughs> object in their back and shoulders. And the first guy who, uh, Tony Watson, told Garrett Cole about this, this practice, and I noticed Cole was showing up after, a day after starts with all these bruises, and we've seen it spread around to Francisco Cervelli's lower back, Jeff Locke's doing it. So uh, it's interesting to see how if an idea how an idea spreads across the clubhouse. And Garrett Cole said that uh, Russell Martin was really influential last year in getting the players to buy into the strength and conditioning staff's preventative health practices. And uh, Martin was the first guy to wear the bio, uh, the Zephyr bio harness that tracks energy consumption and uh, heart rate and that sort of thing. And now we see a bunch of players uh, using that, and it, it helps this training staff monitor uh, our guys' fatigue. Do we need to uh, turn down his workload? That sort of thing. So it's been that's really come online the last couple seasons here, where it's become more of a common practice. You know, as we talked about the pitching staff trying to stay healthy, and I think a lot of credit. Uh, both in health and success, probably has to go to Ray Searage, who's been the pitching coach there since 2010. And it's really interesting. For many years, San Diego was the place that a pitcher, you know, down on his luck, let's say, would go to re- revive his career. And now Pittsburgh has become one of those places. You have, you know, A.J. Burnett struggled with the Yankees, struggled with the Phillies, has been very good with Pittsburgh. Volquez, Liriano, all these guys, they go to Pittsburgh and, and they have a good season. What makes Ray Searage so great? It's a, it's a kind of a perfect storm, really, because you have the Defensive shifts, which are ratcheted up. You have the Pirates focus on acquiring pitch training catchers like Martin Cervelli. And then you have Searage, who's really good at uh, selling pitchers on minor tweaks. He doesn't try to overhaul guys because when Searage was a player, pitcher, pitching coaches tried to overhaul his mechanics, and he hated that. He vowed if he was ever a coach, he wouldn't do that to players. So uh, he says his skill is empathy. He can empathize with players, and he thinks that helps him sell them on. Uh, some uh, fewer adjustments, no overall, just one tweak here or there, and it's helped him get buy-in from Liriano, who's turned around his career, Burnett, a number of guys. So, yeah, you have the pitch training catchers, you have the uh, athletic outfield, infield aligned more intelligently, and then you have the pitching coach who can sell these guys on uh, important isolated adjustments, and it's really been a perfect storm of sorts to allow guys to 
uh, revive their careers in Pittsburgh. You mentioned uh, the pitch framing catchers, and Martin left, obviously, for a huge contract with Toronto. Uh, and they you know, they replaced him with Chris Stewart, who had been a backup for his entire career, and Cervelli, who had never really been able to stay healthy in New York. And obviously, they're not Russell Martin, but the drop-off hasn't been that big, right? I mean, we look at our StatCast uh, metrics for catchers. Chris Stewart has a 1.95-second pop time, which is the third best of any catcher. Cervelli's got a 366 on base percentage. He's an excellent framer. It's, it's been surprising how losing Martin hasn't killed them at that position. Yeah, and I think, you know, one reason is it kept Cervelli on the field, which has been an issue for him throughout his career. And Cervelli is, uh, according to some metrics, he's the best pitcher and catcher in baseball right now. So they've gone all in on pitch rate. And then, look, they miss Martin. He's a better offensive player, uh, fiery energy guy in the clubhouse. That has to mean something. Uh, but, yeah, they've done a good job scrambling to, to fill that loss because it was a considerable one. And it was such a barren free agent market, you wondered, how are they going to withstand this loss? But they, they've done well in the, the Stewart trade and then the Cervelli trade in the offseason to replace at least a portion, a significant portion of Martin's market. Well, obviously, they couldn't pay Martin what he got from Toronto, and they, they took a little bit of a lower-cost gamble on uh, Korean infielder Jung Ho Gong. Uh, didn't really know if he could play shortstop. Didn't know if he could hit in the bigs or, or even where he'd fit because Walker, Harrison, Mercer had the infield really locked down. Uh, and now he's been incredible. He was just the rookie of the month for July with Harrison and Mercer both hurt. Uh, he's stepped in, and he's been a, a pretty good third baseman and, a, let's say, an adequate shortstop. Where would this team be right now without him? Yeah, they would be at a tough spot because they had you – know, the Pirates enjoyed great health the first half of the season. They didn't lose any opening day starters. They didn't lose an opening day starting pitcher until Burnett was hurt. Uh, but then they lose Josh Harrison on July 6th. They lose uh, Jordy Mercer, their shortstop, a week later. And that's when, when Harrison went down – Gong became an everyday player, and he's just, he was great the whole month of July. And uh, it looks like they got the scouting, scouting right on Gong, because I think one of the big questions, I know you wrote about him this week, uh, I think one of the big questions was how would he handle velocity since KBO pitchers are high 80s, low 90s with fastball. And he's been one of the better uh, fastball against velocity. He's been one of the better hitters in baseball. He's shown this ability to make adjustments on the fly in his first case against major league pitching. So, He's not only a talented guy, I think he's a pretty smart guy. Uh, he's handled both third and short adequately. Uh, he's been tremendous at the plate. So, yeah, he's been a, uh, a huge find for this club and a huge bargain at you know, four years, $16 million with the with the postings being included. I think I read today that both Harrison and Mercer are either starting rehab or, or will be very soon. When they come back, and now that they've also acquired Aramis Ramirez, how do you see that force them all fitting into the lineup? Yeah, uh, Harrison's going to start a rehab assignment Tuesday. Mercer, three days after him. So they looks like they're going to beat timetables, assuming there's no the setbacks. They'll be back by the end of the month or early September. And I think the odd man out uh, today, I would guess, is going to be Ramirez, just because this is a run prevention-focused team, and Mercer at short and Gong at third, and maybe Harrison going back to a Super U role gives them their best defensive team, their most versatile team. So Ramirez might end up being a bench bat in September, uh, he's hitting cleanup now, but, but we'll, we'll see how it plays out. But I would suspect they, they would value the defense over the Ramirez's bat at, at third. Uh, let's just touch on two outfielders, and then I'll let you go. Gregory Polanco, it's been kind of a struggle this year. And I, I remember last year, Pirates fans were just killing the front office for, for holding him down and saying he wasn't ready. And then he came up and had a pretty good two weeks or so, uh, but fell off at the end of the year, really has not been that great this year. What is it, just youth and experience with him, or do you see something deeper? Yeah, he's shown, well, look, after 
his first couple of weeks were great, but then it was a year-long struggle, really, for Polanco. And I think, you know, for a lot of young hitters, uh, Mike Trout and the Bryce Harper of the world, that's a par will lie, but for a lot of young hitters, that, and there's been some research done on this, as we know, I mean, the gap between AAA and the majors is as wide as it's ever been with the increased velocity, the, the alignment, all sorts of better scouting. So I think Polanco's another guy uh, who you was know, sort of overwhelmed with all this when he first came up, and you know his adjustments might have come slower than other hitters. But we've seen a little better batted ball profile lately. We've seen some spark from, from Polanco. So maybe he's finding his stride at the right time because the Pirates could use uh, certainly more production from right field. They could use, use a little more offense with, with how good their pitching and, and run prevention has been for most of the season. And finally, we, we cannot talk about the Pirates without talking about Andrew McCutcheon, who is one of the most dynamic players in baseball, is probably going to be one of the best Pirates ever. Uh, we had one of our probably earliest successes with exit velocity with McCutcheon because, uh, as you well know, his first month was just awful you know, by his standards, and we could see the exit velocity was below normal, and it, it you know, kept climbing up and climbing up, and he's actually been pretty good since then. Do you think that that was all due to his knee, or, or was there something else going on there? Yeah, that, that was one of the first great stack generated stories. And, yeah, it was very concerning, I think, for the Pirates, at least early on. I mean, he had dealt with a knee issue in spring training. He had missed a couple weeks. And he just did not look the same guy and the batted ball velocity to back that up. But the Pirates' claim was more of a swing adjustment he made than a knee. And, you know, he's been a lot better since, what was that, mid-May, maybe he turned it around. But, yeah, it's, I think it's something we'll continue to keep an eye on and, and monitor that because it's, it's a great new, new tool to exit velocity to really you know, uh, and understand the quality of, of batted ball contact. And uh, he certainly turned around, but, yeah, it's, it's something to keep an eye on. The knee, it might still be an issue, maybe a lesser one. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely something to monitor. Great. Thanks so much, Travis Sawchuk, author of Big Data Baseball, Math Miracles, the end of a 20-year losing streak. Check it out. Travis, thanks for your time. Thanks so much. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm Mike Petriello. We continue with the Royals and Randy Gisarli, longtime writer from Baseball Prospectus, now found frequently at Grantland. Randy, I have to ask you right away, you're a Royals fan, obviously. What's more unexpected to you, the 2014 miracle run of the World Series or that they're backing it up as the best team in the AL this year? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, they... In, in some ways, I would actually argue this year is more surprising. I mean, just from the standpoint of once you make the playoffs, uh, the postseason is a crapshoot, right? We, we, we know that anything can happen in the postseason. Certainly coming back against Oakland in the wild card game down four runs in the eighth inning was very unlikely, but it was within the realm of possibility. Um, but for the Royals to be sitting right now with the best record in the American League um, it was not something you know I would have uh, me or pretty much anyone else would have expected and to do that over a sample size of over 100 games to me is, is far more impressive um, and has made me reconsider what I've thought about this front office I think more than the magical run they had last October. Yeah I mean I have to say uh, you're absolutely right I did not see this coming you know over the winter I said the White Sox, the Padres were overrated, were not going to live up to it, and I was right about that. But I completely whiffed on the Kansas City Royals. I mean, you saw Shields departs, they replaced him with, with Volquez, did not look like there's enough pitching. Uh, but the pitching staff has, has actually been okay, and now they've added Johnny Cueto. Uh, are, are you, I assume, pleased with the Johnny Cueto deal, even though it cost Brandon Finnegan and, and several others? You know, it did cost a lot, and it, it's, it's weird to say this, but 
you know, a year ago, if they had made a trade like this a year ago, if they had been in this position a year ago, I think the fan base would have been so ecstatic just at the notion of going to the playoffs that it wouldn't have seemed necessary. I mean, what, what, the most amazing thing about the trade is the fact that the Royals didn't make this trade in order to go to the playoffs. I mean, you think about what the Blue Jays did to go out and get David Price and Troy Tulowitzki. They're fighting tooth and nail to get into the postseason. The Royals at the time that they made the trade had something like an eight-game lead on the division. The Tigers looked like they were going to sell. I mean, this was they already had a 95% chance at the playoffs, according to most of the projection systems. So they didn't need to make this trade to go to the playoffs. And a year ago when they, had, they were still on this 29-year postseason drought, I think the idea of gilding the lily and trading future guys just to, to make up for a better playoff team would have seemed like uh, an, an embarrassment of excess. But because of what happened last year, going not just to the playoffs, but getting to Game 7 of the World Series, being that close to winning it all, um, I think it, com- it completely changed the, the goal and sort of the, the calculus of the front office that it's not about just going to the playoffs. They're not going to be satisfied with uh, winning the division and then being knocked out in the ALDS. Um, and I think, I think as a fan, and most of the fans would agree with me, we share that same, that same idea that I would much rather them take a shot at, another, at, a, at, a, at that one elusive world championship, the one thing that eluded the, the team last year, even if it means hurting the, the team's uh, chances in the future by trading away guys like Brandon Finnegan and, and Sean Maniah for Ben Zobrist. Um, I would rather them take a shot. It, it's, it's going to hurt in the future, and because the postseason's a crapshoot, there's only so much the Royals could do. I mean, the, even with Cueto and Zobrist, it's far from a guarantee they'll even get to the World Series, let alone win it. But I understand the thinking of the front office. If you win a World Series, it really doesn't matter. You could, this team could miss the playoffs for the next three or four years, and that's that's a trade I would take. I would happily trade a World Championship now for you know a couple of years of irrelevance. Um, so that that gamble, I think, was worth it. And. Uh, it's it's a weird situation to be in. And literally in the history of the Royals franchise, they had never made uh, a deadline trade for an elite player before. Even even when they won the World Series in 1985, they won the division four times in five years in the late 70s and 1980. The team was much more conservatively run. They never had an all-in deal, and then they made two of them in the span of like three days. Um, so it, it's a, it, it's hard as a Royals fan to get used to where we are now, but I mean there have been a lot of things as a Royals fan that we've gotten used to over the last year um, and with pleasure. And uh, this is another one of those things. Well, on that note, manager Ned Yost, you haven't always been complimentary of his skills, uh, but he took a team to the World Series, and now he's got the best team in the league. So which of the two following statements uh, is accurate? He has improved as a manager, or he the team has proven that managers don't matter that much? I, I, you know, I'll, I'll take the first statement. He's improved as a manager, but I'm going to add a third statement, which is he has always been a good manager at the things that don't involve tactical gameplay. In other words, from 10 p.m. until 7 p.m. the next day, he's always been a good manager. He's managed the clubhouse, which is the most important thing for any manager. He's always been good at that. He always has his players back. One of the things he learned being Bobby Cox's right-hand man in Atlanta for so long, one of the things Bobby Cox did so well he almost never excoriated, uh, criticized his, his players in public. No matter what they did, he always had their back in public. Privately, he might rip them a new one. 
but the players knew that he would never sell them out to the, to the media, to the public, and they always respected him for that. And, and Ed, Ed Yost has done a great job of that in Kansas City. So I think even when he was a tactical uh, disaster, which he has been at times in the past, the fact that the Royals in both 2013 and 2014 played much better in the second half after they were written off last year, obviously, they were under 500 just a week before the trading deadline. It looked like they probably should sell. They did. They kind of stood pat at the trading deadline, and then they caught fire in August um, and played well enough in September to to grab a playoff spot. And then they came back from in the wild card game, and they just were unbeatable for the next two weeks. That all is a testament, I think, to his abilities to motivate his team, for them to rally around each other. The sort of soft factors we don't see in the in the numbers. But on top of that. I think that around middle of September last year, there was a, a notorious game where he stuck with Aaron Crow, who was not a very good reliever. In a key situation in the sixth inning, the bases were loaded. Uh, Crow gave up a grand slam to Daniel Nava of the Red Sox, and, and the, the Royals lost the game. That was sort of a turning point because it was such an important game with so, so little time left in the season. Uh, and it's, from what we can gather, the front office or, the, or his, his coaches came to him and said, it's, you've got to manage differently now. There's a more urgency. You, you, you can't wait until it's Kelvin Herrera's inning to use Kelvin Herrera, for instance. And really from that moment on, he managed the bullpen with a sense of urgency we'd never seen before. And we obviously saw in the playoffs how much he turned to Herrera and Wade Davis and Greg Holland. Those guys averaged something like 2.7 innings a game between the three of them in the postseason. They basically pitched almost every game. Um, they pitched, you know, sometimes two innings at a time, Herrera and Davis, which they had not done all season. Um, and it made a huge difference. And then this year, he hasn't really had to do that so much because he has, in addition, in addition to Herrera, Davis, and Holland, Ryan Madsen's come back from the dead to be brilliant. Luke Hochaver is rounding into shape after Tommy John surgery. Franklin Morales has been a great pickup. Um, and so the Royals suddenly have five, six, seven good relievers. At some point, when the team constantly has a good bullpen, um, you have to, at some point, recognize that maybe the manager has something to do with that, and maybe the way he uses these guys allows them to be comfortable in their role. So I think he has improved significantly as a manager. There are still things he does that drive me crazy or things he doesn't do. He almost never pinch hits, um, which can be a problem. But I think on the balance now, he's not, an, he's not a liability tactically, and I think he's an asset strategically um, in, in the, the daily grind of the, of the clubhouse. So... Um, I've I've made a uh, you know a turnaround in, in my opinion of, on him. I think he's an asset to this team. I, I really wish we could go and show Randy of you know 2012 uh, that audio clip. There, and... there are a lot of things <laughs> of, you would show Randy of 2012 or even 2013. Oh, the the the, the trade for James Shields and Wade Davis will be the the spark that puts the Royals. <laughs> Uh, in, into the postseason. That right. was not something I saw. Well, since, since you brought it up, uh, you hated that deal at the time, and, and I don't say that to call you out because we all did. Pretty much everybody did. Uh, and it it's obviously hasn't worked out quite the way we expected it to. Do you think that's just because these things happen in the sense that Myers hasn't really blossomed into the superstar we thought? Or was the thinking of the team maybe more correct at the time than we thought? I mean, there's certainly some luck involved in the sense that you know the Royals won what, 89 games last year. If they'd won 86... They wouldn't have made the playoffs if they had not come back in the wild card game. Then yeah, they would have made the playoffs. But James Shields would have been the losing pitcher in 
or at least been the starting pitcher in the, in the one playoff game that the Royals had to win and lost. So there's some luck there. If they had if they had won 89 games in 2013, 86 games in 2014, if you just reverse their win totals, they wouldn't have made the playoffs either year. So there was definitely some luck involved with that. Um, but having said that, so many of the criticism I, criticisms I had about the trade, the fact that there were other options on the free agent market they could have signed that would have been as good as James Shields, well, a lot of those pitchers that were on the market that winter, guys like Edwin Jackson, uh, turned out to be big disappointments. Um, I thought that Wade Davis was a key to the trade, but I thought that the key for him was to become a, a good starting pitcher. I thought that if, if he was moved to the bullpen with the salaries he was making, it was unlikely he would be an enormous asset. And then Wade Davis turned into the best reliever in baseball. So, um, you know, the Royals obviously saw something there. And then the fact is, Will Myers, he had, after his rookie of the year season, had an injury-marred, disappointing sophomore year. He hit well this season when he's been healthy, but he's missed a lot of this year. There are Even with Jacob Rizzi kind of emerging as a, as a good starter, I don't think there are a lot of things looking back at that trade that maybe the Royals knew or at least had contemplated deeper than we had thought. Um, and so I do think while the, the trade was very risky, perhaps the risk-to-reward ratio favored them a lot more than I thought at the time. Well, you know, when people think about this team, I think the thing they think about immediately is, is the bullpen, because obviously it's great. But what interests me more than anything is it's the outfield, the defense of the outfield. Uh, obviously, Alex Gordon is very well regarded. We, we ran some of the StatCast numbers before. Uh, Dyson and Kane are both in the top eight as far as average distance covered for outfielders. Dyson's number two, 59 feet. Kane's number eight at 56 feet. Uh, I think your colleague Ben Lindbergh at Grantland a couple of months ago did this really great uh, look at how many runs they have saved compared to, say, the Padres outfield, which is you know considered to be below average. Do you think that this is almost a, or maybe even a larger part of the, the pretty great run prevention they've had than the, the flamethrowers out of the bullpen? Oh, I think it's an enormous part of of their success, and we talk about you know how good how good the pitching is, or or certainly uh, how good the the rotation is when it really hasn't been good. But even the bullpen, we talk about you look at the ERAs of that bullpen. How much of that of the credit that we're giving to that bullpen is actually the credit of of the defense? Um, and you mentioned you know uh, Dyson and 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 Lorenzo Cain. I think Dyson gets lost in the shuffle a lot because he's not a full time uh, you know full time outfielder. Um, but if you look at the numbers uh, from last year, you, you mentioned the, 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 the sort of the, the stack cast, which is which gives us an idea of their uh, of, of their process, but not not necessarily the results. But if you just look at the results from last year um, of defensive runs saved, which is another you know another measurement of how many how good the defense is, how many runs does each defender save. Alex Gordon ranked number one in the American League uh, in defensive runs saved at, at every position, mind you with 27 defensive runs saved. Lorenzo Cain ranked second in the American League with 24. And Gerard Dyson, who only started 66 games in the outfield, ranked 11th with 14. I mean, last year, you could make a very strong case that Gordon Cain Dyson last season is close to the peak defensive outfield in baseball history. I mean, that, that sounds like hyperbole. Maybe it is a little bit, but it was a ridiculous, ridiculously good defensive outfield where you literally had three guys who deserved to win gold gloves. Gordon won the gold glove, actually won the platinum glove. Lorenzo Cain was a huge controversy. He didn't win only because he, he played both center field and right field, and he didn't have enough games qualified to, to, uh, to, to qualify for the gold glove in either position, but I think was probably the best defensive outfielder in, in, the, in the game. And then Gerard Dyson, if you were a full-time player, probably would get some recognition as well. So, um, 
and those guys are pretty much as good this year, maybe not quite as good. Part of the part of the issue with, with Gordon is simply that teams have finally gotten the message that you never, ever, ever run on him. And so instead of throwing out, you know, 17 or 18 batters uh, on the bases, he only threw out eight last year. I think he's only thrown out four or five this year. But nobody challenges his arm anymore. Um, so it's still an elite defensive outfield, and I think it's a huge part of their success. The Royals have tailored their pitching staff to some degree for that because they have a lot of fly ball pitchers. Chris Young, when he signed, uh, I thought was a, was a really useful pickup because he's such an extreme fly ball pitcher, and Coffin Stadium is, is a good place to keep fly balls in the ballpark, and then that outfield is an amazing place to turn those fly balls that don't leave the, ball, the ballpark into outs. And sure enough, Chris Young has been a huge part of uh, this team's uh, you know, rotation this year kind of filling in when guys have been ineffective or hurt. So it's it, it's hard to uh, to overstate the importance of the defense. I think even more than the bullpen, I think the defense really is the team's signature skill. Well, real quick on Gordon, since you brought him up, uh, he's got a, I think it's up to $14 million now as player option for next year. He said he'd pick it up. He actually hasn't done it yet. He turns 32 in February. He's probably costing himself a big long-term deal if he does that. Will he kind of go back on what he'd said, you know, his word to the fans, or, or do you think he walks? He's already kind of backtracked uh, on that, um, and that's why I would actually be very surprised if he just played out one a one-year option. I think he'll go to free agency, but, and this may be the Royals fan in me talking, I actually am fairly optimistic he will re-sign with the Royals. I mean, as much as, 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 as important as he has been to the team, I think the team has been good for him, both in terms of he's from the area, grew up in Nebraska, grew up a Royals fan. He's beloved in the, in the, in the area. Um, and also, you know, he's, he was there when the team was at its worst. They stuck with him when he basically had to rebuild his swing, um, went back to the minors, learned a new position, et cetera, and, and then emerged as a star. Um, I think, I, I don't think he's going to give them a huge hometown discount, but I think if the offers are somewhat within reason, I think he'll he'll stay in Kansas City, and I think the Royals are motivated, and they frankly have the revenue streams now, especially with the attendance boost, um, to make him a competitive offer. So I, I I think it's better than 50-50 that he'll be back in Kansas City, but not on a one-year option. I think it'll be a four- or five-year deal. Randy, final question, and this is going to be an easy one. This is a whole lot more fun than pining for Johnny Javatella and Kayla Kiahua, right? Yes, it is. You know, you get so used to just thinking about the future, and you become fixated on the minor leagues because it's really the only source of joy in your life for 20 years. Is no matter how bad the team is at the major league level, you can dream on these guys in the minors, uh, and, and you don't care about wins or losses in the minor leagues. Um, so it, t- it, it did take, I think, a while for us to, to flip the switch and just, you know, damn the minor leagues. It's all about winning now. But as you can see from the way we've, we've reacted to Johnny Cueto and Ben Zobrist. We, they can always give us some good talent. They may regret those trades, but um, watching a team that is turned not only into a winning team, but you know, are, are, are being called the bad boys of baseball, the bullies of the league. It, we, we've entered a bizarro world, and we're, we're just enjoying the ride. It's, it's, this, is, this is a lot of fun, um, and I'm just terrified that it's going to come crashing down in October because October is cruel to even the best teams. But uh, I'll give the Royals credit that they are trying to – they're, they're not taking anything for granted, and they've, they've papered over their biggest weakness, the lack of an ace, the lack of offense from second base and right field. They've, they've filled those two holes. Assuming Gordon comes back healthy here in the next few weeks, nobody else gets hurt, uh, I think this team is really well set up for October. Well, I can tell you, I have absolutely no connection to Kansas City and Missouri, but I'm really looking forward to that Cardinals-Royals World Series 30 years after 1985. I think it's going to be a blast. Randy Gisarelli from Grantland, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on.